This is Tom Jens, host of Central City Stories, brought to you by the Shepherd Express. My guest today is the young lieutenant governor of the state of Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes. Can we start with your background, where you grew up, what your family was like? I am born and raised in the city of Milwaukee, born on 26th and Locust. My mother is a retired public school teacher. My father is now retired uh, factory worker and uh, for, for GM, for GM subsidiary, I should say. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's where things started for me, 26th and Locust. And those are my, my parents, both, very, both were very active union members. Uh, throughout my entire life. I graduated from John Marshall High School in 2003. I always talk a lot about my parents being able to uh, be a part of the middle class is what helped me in in my life, especially uh, considering other other circumstances that were around me and relative to so many of my peers, whether it be neighbors or classmates. We weren't rich by any means, um, but we were able to have a, a, a stable foundation that offered opportunities for me to be able to, you know, go after the things that I wanted to go after. But I also spent a lot of time with my grandparents, too. I guess that's not the story I, I, I tell all the time. But I spent a whole lot of time with my grandparents because, like I said, both my parents work full time and they were just going to leave me at home by myself. Uh, so spending time with my grandparents definitely help mold me, help shape me. Um, you know, most of the time, you know, they were the ones that took me to school in the morning. My parents would drop me off at their house. I would spend time with them. They'd take me to school. Uh, sometimes they'd pick me up. Um, and I think that is, uh, you know, I, I think about my grandparents' story. They moved here after my granddad served in World War II, and it was for the opportunity. You know, my granddad worked at A.O. Smith. Uh, like so many other people in his generation uh, did, they take advantage of that opportunity. The reason why they came to Milwaukee because it was sort of the inverse. Milwaukee is basically one of the best places for, for black people to live at the time. And uh, you know, my how things change. Yes, yes, it but, has. Uh, yeah. Having an opportunity for my grandfather to you know work on an assembly line. Also, he was also a very active union member, and my grandmother also worked for NPS. So a lot of parallels there. You then went to Alabama A&M, is that correct? Yep. How did that happen? So my mother is originally from Birmingham, Alabama, and my mother went to Alabama A&M as well, and uh, it was basically a family school. And what was your field? Um, media communication. How did you get involved in public service then, in politics in Milwaukee? How yeah. did that involve? In college, I joined organizations like NAACP and student government, and in being a part of those organizations, um, you know, going there to study broadcast journalism, I you know initially would do TV, radio, or even print. But like, it was 2004, I would say, Barack Obama gave his um, DFC speech, and I paid to John Kerry, and it was a very inspirational moment for me. Seeing that happen, you know, seeing him on the stage, it was just like, all right, well, this is something that I would actually be interested in you know, pursuing or interested in, you know, considering at some point, not running for president, but just being involved in politics in general. So 2008, after I finished school, I decided to go work on a campaign as a field organizer. I ended up in rural Northwest Louisiana. That's where I was assigned. 
and I, you know, packed up my bags, moved out there for about five to six months. And after that election, we ended up losing by 350 votes. Um, after that election, I ended up making my way back to Milwaukee. And I ended up doing an unpaid internship in Tom Barrett's office. And after a, couple, after a few weeks there, um, the receptionist position opened up. Then I became a receptionist in Tom Barrett's office. And uh, after that, I went to the Milwaukee Area Workforce Investment Board. Uh, about a year down the line, I got laid off from my job, where my job was to help people find jobs. And then I got back into organizing uh, after Scott Walker took office and dropped the bomb, quote unquote, and uh, worked for a group called MICA, Milwaukee Inner City Congregations Ally for Hope. And in doing my work for MICA, I was, uh, I was able to uh, engage in a number of issues, jobs and economic development, education, immigration reform, and treatment instead of prison. Uh, issues that I was you know, aware of, but I had a chance to take a deeper dive into the policy implications of each of those issues. And after, you know, banging our heads against the wall and not getting the response that I thought that we should have been getting, I was faced with a choice, uh, keep trying this way or run for office myself if I thought it was so easy. <laughs> so I decided to run for office in 2012 ran for state representative. I mean, right now your job includes helping oversee the entire state. But uh, you did serve in the assembly, as you say, for four years, and you represented District yep. 11, and you were on that's on the north side. So you've got experience with the current problems, right? The segregation, racism, oh, the unrest, and the decline of what's happening, even in your neighbor at 26th and Locust, you know. So do, do you have thoughts on, on maybe what could be done, more specific ideas uh, along those lines to help with the energy? I think it's important for us to... Mm-hmm. I think it's important for us to provide opportunities. Like, you know, the decline in quality of life in those neighborhoods and those communities is directly correlated with the decline in opportunities. And when big factories like A.O. Smith, when they left, there was nothing that went back to replace them. There was, there was nothing. That was it. These communities were left with a gaping hole. Home ownership declined, income declined, and a lot of people just left the area because of, you know, what was once uh, a hub of opportunity uh, you know, became much less than that. You know, when you look at economic development, it has happened in many ways, but it's been concentrated and a sort of economic opportunity hasn't been dispersed equally or hasn't been dispersed, you know, where the need has been. I mean, you look at the revitalization of so many other areas in Milwaukee, and this is, you know, not to say that it shouldn't happen, but it's to ask the question, why hasn't it happened? in other areas that were once, um, you know, hubs of opportunity, like whether we're talking about the third ward, fifth ward, downtown area, you know, Walker's Point, the Menominee Valley, all these, all these places that saw steep declines at some point or no activity or, you know, we're home to no activity uh, are now some of the most bustling areas of, of the city uh, yet where you saw, opportunity for to, to create a strong black middle class when that went away uh, I don't think there was enough effort to replace what had been lost and the unfortunate part of what's happening in the inner city is the the crimes are you know largely black on black crimes including shootings and robberies and uh, this is kind of tragic the inner city residents are hurting themselves 
you know, a lot of it is, you know, are crimes of proximity, you know, and white communities, the, the murders that are happening in white communities are white on white, for, you know, for the most part, the same way it is with, you know, any, any, any group of people. And, and this is not to downplay any, any sort of uh, violent act. A lot of these are uh, familial instances to um, the number of, you know, murders. And there are a bunch uh, that aren't. You know, like when you see a, a child who gets, you know, shot and killed. Like, it, it's so easy to categorize it as, you know, a black-on-black crime. I think it's important for us to look deeper into uh, the factors surrounding each one because everyone is, all of them are, are going to be different. Just like the same way we look at, we can just go back to schools and it can be easy to say, well, yeah, this school has a low graduation rate. And even if we were to use like 40%, which is, or 60% graduation rate, which is, you know, any school will be shut down, 60% graduation rate. Um, but the fact is, well, where was the disconnect with the 60% of children that graduated and 40% that didn't? Because something had to be at least somewhat functioning with the 60%. Uh, but chances are uh, that 40% of students have something going on uh, that had nothing to do with the school, uh, whether it's poverty, uh, whether it is living in a, in a in a community also that has uh, been rocked by violence in some sort of way, because you got children, man, who are uh, growing up with PTSD, have seen things that I've never seen, things I never want to see, and they're carrying this to school because they don't and they don't even have an outlet, and it, it is reflected uh, in in so many other ways. And you know, I've been a, a staunch advocate, uh, you know, against against gun violence. I I, I have friends who were shot and killed in high school, at least two during my time of high school and so many more uh, shortly after. I mean, I just started rattling off names, um, and it's depressing. Uh, but this is the reason. And the thing is, like, that's not just my reality. That's the reality for so many other, so many other people. And um, when, when, when that becomes the norm, uh, you know, when, when violence becomes uh, what people come to expect, it, it only gets worse uh, with, 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 each, uh, with each generation. And I still don't think it's too late at all for us to, to do the right thing to get people on track. But it takes, I mean, it, it, it takes a real effort. You, know, you can't just, you know, sit and have one strategy meeting with people who couldn't be more disconnected from the issue or more disconnected from the problem and expect to come up with some sort of solutions. I mean, I think it's important uh, to, to have people who have been a part of the system, whether they've been in jail before, uh, whether they have been associated with a violent crime in one way or another as a perpetrator or as a victim or even as a, as, as, as a witness. And I think, you know, you got to have that perspective. You got to be able to, to, to talk to them and, you know, not, and that it's going to be easier, not that everybody's going to be willing to have that conversation, uh, but there will be some. And when we are able to, you know, hear what people actually have to say, uh, I, I think that puts us in a much better place to, um, to resolve it, some of this. Well, I've uh, tried to focus my efforts on a black, well, and maybe white to an extent, leaders that are more on the ground, if you follow me, that are involved like Frank Nitti, Vaughn Mays, Tory Lowe, people like that. And there seems to be a, a common ground with what, what they're trying to do, and they feel that 
There aren't enough strong black male role models. And so their struggle is, how do we get these role models? How do we get them to actually participate with, with the youth? Oh, yeah. yeah. I still do whenever I'm able to. Well, that's another one where you got to look a little bit deeper. Um, you know, you look at war on drugs and how a lot of black men got placed in prison for things that folks are making millions of dollars off of that had a, a devastating impact. It was, it was a seismic impact, just like the loss of industry. On top of that, um, you have you know, other issues like family units were discouraged with welfare. And, you know, having a, having a man in the house meant that uh, families in need wouldn't get the benefits that they needed or deserved to help them, you know, live some sort of happy and, and somewhat of a, a healthy life. All those, all those things together uh, played a played a role, and in, in I guess I'd say in the disappearance of, of of having these solid these solid role models. My hope would be that some of these I could give you the names of six or seven people I've known fairly well now, uh, more on the ground type people who have, like you said, maybe gone through prison but reformed. I wish they would be included more in in the major politicians in Milwaukee, that they would include them in the, the meetings, you know, for ideas and so on. You know, get them together and talk about things that could be done. You follow me? It's like any sort of relationship, right? Like, you know, come into a relationship with a, a, a different perspective, a different frame of mind uh, than a partner. If there's a disagreement when you show up, you know, ready for war, it's going to end in war. Right, and then whatever resolve comes is not going to be anything that is uh, going to be healthy or sustainable. So, uh, you know, you, you go into that relationship recognizing that we are all going to exist in this space together, regardless. Uh, we should try to make the best of it, try to make the most of it, especially, you know, if the end game for each side is safer communities, safer streets, and more opportunities. It's not easy for people to. You know, show up, especially when there are so many reasons to be upset, frustrated, and mad. Um, but if you you come into it, you know, recognizing that yes, there are problems, and the goal of this is to rectify whatever it is we're dealing with, then I, I think that there there'll be more opportunities for productive conversations presented. Very good. Finally. Do you think we can ever get past this racial hatred with one another? I mean, it's just, it's its ridiculous. Social media fuels it, you know, mainstream media fuels it. It just seems to me like, uh, couldn't we have a respect for one another's culture? Couldn't we, you know, get together, talk, respect one another? <laughs> Is that ever possible? We, we have to. I mean, man, we, we, we have to. And that's, a, that's one of the casualties of being in the in one of the most segregated cities in America. Um, you know, I I was able, you know, my in my childhood to be around a lot of people who didn't look like me or who didn't share similar experiences that, that I did. Um, and for them as well as me, there was, you know, the opportunity there was there was an appreciation of of who we were and knowing and knowing first that we were different and things weren't gonna be the same for all of us, and on both sides, I think that uh, we greatly benefited from that. But that's not everybody's experience, and because that is not the experience of most people, uh, too many, too many folks are, are are existing with an unfounded resentment for one another. 
Yeah. And, and I, you know, I won't even say unfounded because a lot of it is, is promoted, right? Like, you, you got to, you have somebody like the president we have now who is only making things worse. Like, it, is, it didn't start with him, but he's certainly not making it better. Um, he enables so many people uh, with, with a pre existing racial animus to be even more uh, absurd about it. Yeah, you're right. In my conversations with the suburban whites, they do support Black Lives Matter. They even put the signs up. They sometimes go on the protests. They do the chants. But when it comes to my asking them, well, would you come into the inner city and talk to some people there and participate? No, they're not going to do that. They're afraid. I mean, how the hell do you ever get anything done? You know, it's just, anyway. (laughs) Yeah, man. That's a classic anecdote. My guest today has been Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Thank you, Lieutenant Governor, for participating. Very much enjoyed talking with you. This is Tom Jens, host of Central City Stories, brought to you by the Shepherd Express.